You're listening to Reframe Your Life. This is episode 113. I'm Sandy Reynolds, and I'm here today with Patty Hall, my co-host, and we are interviewing another memoir writer who's written a story that's really helping us to reframe a difficult experience in our culture and certainly was a experience that I think her sharing helped her to reframe her life. Just going to warn you that this is going to probably be a little heavier than some of the other conversations we've had in the past. And we're going to get right into it. There's not going to be a soft, uh, easy way to broach some of the conversations we're having today, but I'm going to get Patty to take it from here and introduce our guest today. I'd love to. So welcome, Samra Zafar. Our guest today is the author of A Good Wife, published by HarperCollins in 2019. A teenage Samra dreamed of attending university, the big universities, and pursuing her dreams of education. But at 16, she was pressured into marriage to a stranger and forced to leave her home less than a year later, where she lived with her family in the United Arab Emirates. She moved to Canada with her husband and his relatives. Although she was promised that her future in Canada would still involve her dreams for herself, her new home became a prison. And she sees that the lies that she'd been fed were not going to be, uh, sorry, she sees that she has been fed lies and her educational dreams will not be coming to fruition, at least not in the way she had envisioned. Samra refuses to accept her situation and crafts an escape plan for herself and by then her two young daughters as well knowing that she'll be shunned for leaving and divorcing her husband. A Good Wife is a gripping and inspiring story of a woman who battles oppression on almost every level to find the power to achieve her independence and embrace her personal power. In addition to being a memoirist, Samara is an international speaker, founder of Brave Beginnings, the nonprofit, a mentor and a human rights advocate. She is a TEDx speaker and a sought after advisor for other folks seeking human rights uh, relief from their situation. Welcome, Samra. We're thrilled to meet you and have us here. Have you here with us? Thank you so much, Patty. I'm so so thrilled to be here. Thank you, Sandy, for that one. Both of you for that wonderful intro and for inviting me here. Oh, it's our pleasure. I have been recommending your book widely since I read it, and I oh. read it. I couldn't put it down. Like I, it kept every time I like start reading, and I I. I have half an hour to read. It'd be like an hour and I'd be like, I got to just read a little bit more. I can't leave. Very, very um, compelling story. And um, a story that I'm very interested in. I am really interested in how women leave toxic situations and whether they're religious systems or uh, marriages or whatever it is. I think it takes a great deal of courage for most women to walk away and it takes a long time and it's not something that we just decide to leave. Um, we always start out right now with asking about how people are doing during the pandemic and how COVID-19 is affecting their life and their work. And I know it's probably a heavy conversation to jump into, but I'm curious to know how this is affecting your life. I mean, we've been hearing lots of stories about the increase in domestic violence during this time and has that been something that you've been dealing with more in your work? Absolutely that has been um, the focus of most of my work over the past few months and you know it, it's it's kind of um, it hit me out of nowhere to be honest uh, on a personal level as well 
I was doing my hair one day and suddenly I got this really vivid flashback of this one incident when I had gone to the mall with my ex-husband when I was married and some of my hair had escaped from my hijab and he got really, really upset about that and came home and hit me. And, and I, and it, it, that, that memory just kind of came back to me with, with such force as if it's happening right now. And I, um, and I started to walk on eggshells in my own home and I was just feeling really, really raw and vulnerable and uh, fearful. And I, I talked to my therapist and he said, he asked me a question. He said, Samra, when was the last time that you were told you cannot go out of the house you were isolated and you were told you can't meet your friends. And I said, Oh my God, it was in my marriage. And you know, it, it, I, I understood then that even though, yes, these are two very different situations um, because this is the last time I was, I was, I felt that way or I was in yes. such a situation, my mind and my body was processing it the same way. So it's like that trauma memory. And uh, that just made me feel so heartbroken for uh like i've been out of my marriage for 10 years and you know I'm, i have a great life and everything and i i just like thought what if i was actually in the marriage right now that would have been absolutely unbearable like to not have any kind of relief because he's not going to work um not being able to go to school or work because my school was my my little safe haven um not having, uh, and then him being frustrated and agitated because he may have lost his job or he may be under financial stress. And whenever there is stress, the abuse increases because the abuser becomes more frustrated and the victim becomes the punching bag for his frustration. So that sort of just was very personal to me. And I knew that I needed to do whatever I could to help support women through this time. So I started running weekly webinars and uh, support groups virtually and doing uh, considerable media work uh, in that uh, in that field, but it's it's been on my mind a lot, and I've I've been hearing countless stories from other women who work um, who run shelters or who work in the violence against women space, and even survivors and victims writing to me sometimes anonymously on social media and telling me what's going on. Um, it's it's a very in fact one one of the agencies I work with is Assaulted Women's Helpline, and I was talking to one of their people the other day, and she said that we, we are seeing a 400% increase in the number of calls wow. they're getting. Mm. Well, that's, uh, you know, I've, I've been hearing those things. And of course, it's been difficult for, for people who have good coping mechanisms and are in supportive environments. And I can only imagine how difficult it must be for uh, a number of, a, a lot of people right now who don't have that. Absolutely. And then it, it, it also translates to a lot of mental health issues and a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, just dealing with any kind of trauma. We all go through some form of trauma in our lives. And uh, whenever we are going through uh, something like this, which is, in other words, collective trauma, uh, a lot of our individual trauma may be coming back. So I've been talking yes. to a lot of people about that. And uh, and uh, mental health is being sa- said, rightly so, as a shadow pandemic of this pandemic, yes. right? So um, so that's, that's a lot of my work has been focused uh, around that as well. 
Wow. I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned it, um, sadly, because it's something that's been coming up for me personally, because my book launched, my memoir launched during this pandemic launched in April. And I found that the nature of the questions people have been asking me in my own interviews has shifted to how did you cope? How are you feeling right now? How is your son, you know, really yeah. getting into the mental health parts of my memoir yeah. and not not so much the medical or the the relationships I blew up or the things that I felt extremely vulnerable about in the memoir, people are instead going to, are you feeling triggered right now? Are you, how are you managing? And um, although I welcome it, I was surprised by that. And this idea of the collective trauma, and I think our awareness that we're each feeling it, and we want to talk about it, even in the sort of um, around the back corner kind of way, people yeah. asking me about my I don't name it PTSD because I don't feel qualified to, but people asking me questions about that have surprised me. And I think right now we just really need to be talking about yeah. it and opening it up however we can. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, before I ask my next question, I just want to thank you for the work you're doing because I, mm. it's so, it is really important that oh, yeah. we have people like you that are supporting women. And at the end, we definitely want to come back to how people can support you and, and get involved as well. Um, I have always been fascinated. If there's one type of memoir that I'm drawn to, it's stories of women who have left toxic systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've been really fascinated with women who have left toxic religious systems because my background, I spent um, 25 years very involved in the Christian faith as a pastor's wife. And within that context, I saw a lot of patriarchy and a lot of uh, male domination of women to put it bluntly and I was thinking about that as I was reading your book the role that faith played in your marriage and not just in um, your uh, marriage um, coming together and in you getting married and and the way that um, played out but also surprisingly in your marriage ending with the I'm not sure how to say the word the triple palette Talat, yes. And uh, I I thought, wow, in a way that opened up a a whole other conversation for you. And I was just curious how you feel now about the role that religion plays in determining whether or not someone is free to leave a marriage. Absolutely. That's such a great question. Thanks, Andy. And um, religion is is used as a really, really a poignant tool to hold women back and and trapped in these kind of systems because religion is used as a way to justify patriarchy, justify misogyny, justify uh, a power imbalance between men and women. And and whatever religion you pick up, I think they have elements of that, at least the way it's practiced. I, you know, I won't comment on the spirit of that particular religion because, but I will definitely say the way it's widely practiced. Like in my case, for example, like I grew up a Muslim and I grew up seeing uh, all kinds of atrocities being justified in the name of religion. Uh, my own father was abusive to my mom and uh, everybody told my mom that she has to stay because that's what a woman's job was. Then when I was married and I was going through abuse, um, I was told that, oh, it's okay. It's perfectly permissible for a man to hit his wife in Islam. So you should stay and tolerate. That's what good women do. Uh, good, mm-hmm. A good wife tolerates. A good wife is submissive. A good wife uh, is the one who stays quiet and silent. And that's why my book's name is A Good Wife. Uh, so it is, it, and then even when I got 
divorced, you know, the shame and stigma that was inflicted upon me was also from a religious standpoint. Well, divorced women are scorned women by, uh, from God. And, you know, a single motherhood is a bad word. And, and uh, uh, you feel, what's the purpose or what's the point? My own brother-in-law once said, what's the point of you winning all these awards and scholarships if you failed at the real purpose of being a woman? Shame on you. Uh, you feel that you're God-prescribed purpose. So uh, you hear that so much. And in my case, though, you know, when, when the whole talaq thing happened, I used religion to my advantage at that point. I actually, he said those three the three talaqs. And if in, in Islam, if you go to different schools of thought or different scholars, they will say different things. Just like any religion is open to interpretation. Right. Right? So um, uh, one, one uh, mosque a scholar said, yes, it's done. The other said, no, it's not done, etc. And there was ambiguity around it. And I sort of just put my foot down and I used that to, as a way to get out that yes, it's done, it's over. So uh, I, I, I kind of used religion as a tool as well in in this case getting out uh uh and finding the loophole to be able to get out so um so (laughs) but it it is absolutely very very constricting and i certainly have been at the receiving end of that not just during my marriage but even after that even today you know my own mother doesn't support my work or uh she thinks I'm a bit of a failure when it comes to religion and I'm the only thing standing between her and the gates of heaven. <laughs> so, because she's not able to fix me as a woman. So, you know, it is, it is debilitating and it is very uh, stigmatizing. And sometimes yes. you feel like, where's your place? Where do I belong? Like, you know, am I just going to be seen as the source of shame forever? Yes. Uh, and uh, where, and I can imagine so many women feeling this way. And on one hand, you want to be accepted. You want to be included in your family, in your community. Uh, and you want that level of peace that your faith may give you. Uh, but then on the other hand, you also disagree with all the all this patriarchy and misogyny that's justified in the name of religion. And then you're like, wh- where where is that fine line? Where is that balance? And I'm still, I'm still on the journey to find that, you know, to, dis- to be able to distinguish between faith and organized religion and find my, my spiritual peaceful place. Oh, it's funny you ended with that balance because that was my next question. I actually use that term of how do you find the balance um, between abuse? Well, I don't know if there is a balance between abuse and control, but I was thinking from my background how um, often... Um, in the faith tradition I was a part of, um, there was a subtle control that was um, over women by their husbands. And it showed up in conversations I would have where somebody would say, oh, I really like that, what you're wearing, but my husband wouldn't let me wear something like that. Or I remember one woman, we were on like a woman's retreat and I had on like flannel pajamas yeah I know that that's my thing so I had on flannel pajamas and she said oh I wish I could wear those my husband will only let me wear negligees to bed and I remember being a little um shocked that 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 would seem acceptable and so I was when I was reading your book you know these are things that I often kind of pay attention to when I'm reading a book but um you said that um in your book that you quite often where your husband would say, I love you so much. I blank fill in the blank. I, you know, have to control you. I love you so much. I, I go crazy when I think of another man looking at you. 
And I was wondering where these lines are. And um, if women are indoctrinated and socialized from a young age to accept uh, the male patriarchy and the male um, putting themselves um, and their opinions and their thoughts below the, the opinions of their spouse or their father, or the, the men in their lives, how do they uh, how do they separate? How do you start to separate abuse and control from what might be love? I know that's a complicated question. That's an amazing question, Sandy. And thank you for asking that because that line between abuse and control versus love and and you know uh, a healthy sense of I guess uh, um, belonging uh, that line is often blurred and that comes from so many different places, right? It comes from media, the way media portrays romance, you know, love at first sight, uh, this, this magical kind of way of like, oh, I don't want someone looking at you because I love you so much. Jealousy and possessiveness are romanticized uh, in a lot of movies that we watch. Um, and, 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 and then I think it also comes from uh, the generational cycle that perpetuates abuse. So when children grow up watching that kind of behavior at home between their parents, then they normalize it. That's kind of what happened to me. Like, you know, I, my parents, um, they had a very abusive marriage. My father was abused, very abusive to my mom. But whenever I would come home, I didn't know if they would be acting like lovebirds or if they would be at each other's throats. And it was a very confusing childhood. So a lot of that is what actually happened in my own marriage. And I just didn't know better. Like I, I learned that love comes with abuse. You know, yes. when you love each other, you fight, you know, you, uh, because I saw my father uh, being, you know, being extremely violent. And then the other, the, on the next day, they would say sorry to each other and they would you know, it'd be like, oh, everything is wonderful and we love each other and that's what love is. So you, it's learned behavior. And then a lot of it comes from, uh, you know, our own, our own sense of insecurities and our so own sense of, you know, that we are, we are humans uh, as we are social creatures. You know, we want to feel belonged. We want to feel love. We want to feel connected to another human being. We all crave that. And uh, on, on some level, that need uh, to feel love or to be loved, uh, we look for it outside instead of within. And um, we're not taught about self-love. We're not taught about no. putting ourselves first, especially as women. We're always taught to put ourselves on the back burner and everybody else comes first, especially our partner. You know, love is about sacrifice. Love is about, you know, being the sacrificial lamb. Love is about, uh, you know, taking care of someone else's needs as opposed to your own. And we are often taught that taking care of ourselves is being selfish. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, uh, whereas, in fact, you know, um, it's not. Uh, on the contrary, when you love yourself, you love others uh, in a much better and healthier way. But it takes years to learn that. And I'm still on that journey. You know, I, I feel mm. like I spent the first a long time of my life, like 30 years of my life, learning all those things so that I'm now unlearning all of those things. Right. Um, so and abuse is it doesn't start with a slap or a kick. Abuse starts with those little underhanded compliments that are uh, that something that some sentence that's thrown in 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 a lot of beautiful flowery words uh right. it, it is about that joke that's made at your expense when everything yes. else seems so perfect you know it starts that way it starts with someone why are you wearing 
you know, these quotes, you know, your shoulders are showing, I, I yes. really don't like it. Like, don't, don't you, like, can't can I have an opinion about that? Like, I love you so much. Right. Or why are you going out with your friends? Like, I just wish you'd spend all your time with me. I just, I just don't like being away from you, baby. Like that is how it starts. And it is so hard to detect because on one hand, you're like, I feel off about this. And on the other, but he loves me so much. You know, right. this is just coming from a place of love. He doesn't, he can't tolerate it. If I give attention to other people isn't that the kind of love I want that's the kind of love out of the movies uh right Right. Uh, we don't teach our girls about the fact that if somebody says I love you to you within five days of meeting you without getting to know you that's not romantic that's a red flag you know teach our girls that um you know, if somebody, if you're feeling bad about yourself or there's something in your gut, like to trust that gut, we often teach them to talk. Like imagine if, if I, uh, you know, I've gone, I've been in, in, in such a very short relationship last year, which was kind of like that. And, and the only reason I was able to recognize and walk away very quickly was because I knew of those things. But even then, when I talked to a few of my friends, most of them supported me, but a few of them were like, oh, come on, you're just reading too much into it. You're so, like, right. so wonderful. Like, look at what he did for your birthday. You know, look at like, because there was a ton of romance. There was a ton of like love, you know, I'm talking about love in quotation marks, right? Yes. So um it's very, very hard to detect. And, but there are, thankfully, a lot of early signs to abusive behavior. Right. Which, but um, unfortunately, we look at them only in hindsight. Oh, I saw all these red flags like early on. I, I right. wish I could, have, uh, I could have walked away then. As I often describe abuse as this frog analogy. So if you put a frog in hot water, the frog will jump out and run away. It has the ability to do that. But if you put the frog in cold water and turn the heat up very slightly, the frog's body temperature keeps adjusting to the rising temperature of the water. And eventually the frog will boil to death without even realizing. And that's what abuse is like. It it progresses in a very insidious way. And Mm -hmm. uh, and you you almost don't recognize what's happening and you're just tolerance level like, you know, yeah, I let that comment slip by last week. So why am I getting mad this week? And then there'll be another comment and another. And eventually, like by the time that slap or kick comes, you're already so accustomed to it. You're already so attuned to believing that it was your fault. Uh, in my marriage, and you've read the book, like the, the actual like really harsh physical abuse didn't happen until probably eight or nine years into the marriage. In the right. beginning, it was all that control. I don't want you to go out. I want you to, please, baby, can you wear the hijab? Because I really like it when, uh, you know, I really like, I think it looks really, really beautiful on women. And and uh, I, 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 why should anyone else see your hair? Like, isn't that for me only? Like those kinds of things. And And I used to think, you know, because I didn't have any way of knowing better then that, oh my God, he loves me so much. Of course I can right. do this for him. Isn't that what love is about? Is doing things for, for the other person. Um, right. So it is, it is so imperative to bring that knowledge and awareness to our young kids, our young girls and boys about what are healthy relationships and how do you build a healthy relationship with yourself first mm-hmm. and the importance of boundaries. Yes. You do things for each other when you love each other, but not at the cost of your own self-respect and your own self-esteem and your own freedom of choice. Uh, no one yeah, has I, I love that about the way you dress or the way you behave or the, your ambitions and goals. Like one thing I always heard from my ex-husband, why are you so abnormal? Why can't you be a normal woman? Why do you have mm. all these big dreams and goals? 
right? So, um, and I thought, well, yeah, if I love him, I can sacrifice my goals. That's not love. That's, that's yeah. self-destruction. I, I love that you couldn't. And I mean, as a character, if this wasn't nonfiction, you would be the most incredible fiction character because we, you are our champion, right? You are a superhero to us. And for me, one of the most impactful pieces of the, the book was this wrestling with knowing shame was coming, but feeling so much shame. And I can almost quote you back to yourself, but uh, you said, you know, the, the shame of of leaving was greater than the, sh the shame you felt personally of staying. You could eat your own shame. But right. what made that possible was for me that your voice was constricted, was that you had witnessed it in your mom. You had witnessed it in the women in your life. You'd been coached and cajoled into not having it. But, and my favorite line from your TED talk, and I've quoted this to many women as I've recommended your book, was that you said the greatest ally of abuse is silence. Yeah. And for me, it wasn't even that you're, it wasn't something as bashed about as ambition, because I think ambition gets this terrible, gets this terrible negative stigma about it itself. It was that your voice fought its way through. It was the, the dream fought its way through, your desire for choice. But for me, could you speak to that power of voice within you that was mm -hmm. someone needs to listen to me? And I know that your daughters gave that to you as well. But for me, when, I, when we first meet you in the book, you have this desire and this wish that is entirely possible and you're not repressed by any kind of cultural or gender or racial or religion. No, nothing was going to stop you from these educational dreams. And I love that because the geek in me was loving that too, but you could voice it at home and then you couldn't voice it anymore. It was promised to you and you acted on blind faith that it would be delivered to you. But I love that it was bubbling up inside you all the time. Yeah. yeah you know, voice is everything is everything and that voice is within us you know we often hear find your voice we don't need to find our voices right. we need to just listen to our voice uh, you know it is it is not about fight it's not something you find outside like it's actually already there you just gotta listen to it my voice is in the back garden <laughs> so you know it, it's it it's sort of since I was a young girl, I, one of my favorite things to do was to gather my sisters every weekend and play teacher and I would be the teacher. You know, I would, <laughs> I would love being on stage and I would love choreographing dances in my school national days and um, concerts and, and um, founding the girls cricket team, creating the school newspaper. So I was always that person who didn't take no for an answer. I'd always like find some way to make it work. And yes, it was a confusing childhood because at home I was being told that yes, I can achieve all my dreams. But then when I would go outside of home, I would hear that my dreams aren't valid because I'm a girl. Uh, my, even my uncles and aunts and everybody would say that, oh yeah, you know, you can have these big goals and dreams as long as you don't expect them to come true. Uh, your real purpose is to get married. Like everybody would, would be talking to my uh, parents, not about my dreams and goals, but more about uh, how, how my parents are saving up for my dowry for my wedding, you know, right. uh, instead of saving up for my education. So it, in fact, one time my aunt said to my mom that she should take me to some kind of a doctor to stop me from growing so tall, because otherwise, how would I find a guy? Uh, so, uh, or how would they find someone, a guy for me? So, I hear he, I, I grew up with all these conflicting messages, but 
but throughout that noise, my own voice was always there. Like, yes, yes. I want to do this. I'm not going to take no for an answer. So even, even when my marriage was fixed, the only question I asked my ex-husband was, will you let me go to school? Uh, right. In that one phone call that I had with him before we got married. So um, that, is, uh, that was always there. And then when I got married and all those dreams were put to a stop and uh, suddenly my entire world comes crashing down and everything changed. You know, I go from being a high school teenager to, to yes. being a mother and a wife and a daughter-in-law. So during that time, my, uh, my voice may have been uh, subdued, but it was never silenced. Yes. That little voice in my head was always there, that there is a way. I can find a way. I can, some, there, there has to be a way. Like this can't just be it. This can't be the end of my, my, my ambitions. This can't be the end of my aspirations. This can't be my story. This I, is my I couldn't, I can't hear enough about that. I mean, I, and I, I love it in a, in a particular way because it is the understatedness of your voice that I think makes you the most compelling narrator in your book. Because even though we can see the elements of what will get you out eventually, you, you drop the seeds for us that education will be your way out. There's a pivotal moment where I remember you um, biting, almost biting your own tongue. I think it's when, um, it's before you leave the UAE, your sisters are around and it's sort of the last time they'll have to gather with you. And they're like, let's go up to the hotel room and tell stories and let's go talk the way we always have. And you don't because you hear someone else's voice. You hear the voice of a good wife wouldn't do that. An adult, I have to be an adult now. That breaking away from who you were to stepping into who you had to be. And for me, the, the writing is this shift of the, the voice inside your head of who you must be, all of the shoulds from who you were to yeah. who you become to who you are now is, is this, um, is the voice in, in your book that I can't hear enough about because even, I even noticed that you don't tap into it, which was obviously calculated in your book, but it's the gut, right? We yeah. say, listen to our gut, but you know, and you teach us in this book that what it really is, is the sound of that inner voice that never leaves you. And it's I love leaves. that you said it's, it's always there. We, we sometimes talk ourselves out of listening to it. Right. Uh, and I did for, for several years. Uh, and we, and others' voices become louder. But when we actually sit and just listen to our own voice, that's our biggest guide. We don't need any other outside mentors and teachers. That's our inner teacher. And mm, that beautiful. Voice left me. You know, I always was, there's a way, there's something. And that's, that's what guided me to getting, you know, getting my high school courses done through the independent learning center when I couldn't, wasn't allowed to go to a regular high school or finding a way to make money at home to pay for my tuition, like running that home day. Amazing. Uh, so it, it was always that voice that guided me, uh, that, there's some, there's some way there's, there's something. And uh, a friend of mine describes me as, you know, like um, somebody living in a jail cell with only a teaspoon and you just take that teaspoon to dig little bits and pieces out and create yeah. a tunnel for yourself. Uh, <laughs> it's about taking, not taking no for an answer because uh, you, when you listen to that inner voice, that inner guide that we all have, um, like it, we can't go wrong. We, it's impossible to go wrong. And uh, it's, it's honestly, 
that's the only teacher and mentor you need. Yes, outside help will come, people will support you, but it has, has to start from within you. And the only person, the only person you really need permission and approval from to do anything is yourself. I mean, I, whether you keep this or not, Sandy, like, I just need you in my life. Sam Rosa I need you in my life. I mean, cut, cut or keep this. I am, I am just, I am, as I move into my next book, I just, I'm sitting here wanting to weep saying to Sandy, like, where has Samra been for the last decade of my life? Because we're talking about things that, and keep or cut Sandy, but <clears throat> this is a woman's thing to me. And I don't want to overstate that because I know many men who have are still working through trying to find their voice. And in fact, as a mother of sons, their voice was a number one priority to their father and I, when we were together, it was our number one priority that they not be constricted by the norms of not being vocal about their emotions and their feelings and having have them both having to step into their feminist leanings makes me so proud because mm -hmm. they say what they feel. And even though we are supposedly the more sensitive, the more feeling and all of those ridiculous um, stereotypes, we still aren't stepping into our voice. We still aren't owning our voice. We are staying, I stayed in a marriage too long. I stayed in, I stay in every relationship too long. I stay in negative business relationships too long. And I know Sandy can speak to this from, you know, the side of, of faith and a number of other factors, but the fact that you said gut and I hear voice means power for me. Mm -hmm. And I think your language and your ability to express it and it not be just about your own story is the power and self-empowerment that comes from your book. And I'm so thankful for the work that you do. And you're, mm -hmm. you're so right there, Patty, because that inner voice, we, uh, I, I'm, I'm talking about this here, sitting here today, but I'm still on that journey. Like I've stayed <sighs> in work relationships far too long. Um, I'm currently in one. Uh, I've stayed in uh, in careers that are not um, not in tune with who I am because I've been too afraid. I've stayed in um, relationships for sure. Like even after my marriage, if there the few relationships that I've been in uh, were not healthy for me, uh, and I knew that. I knew that yeah. my inner voice told me that this is not okay. Like get get out of this. But I would talk myself into thinking that no, but but this person. Is, is good. Like we're, you know, that feeling of like that fear of being lonely, that fear of being abandoned kicked in. And, um, and then you just stay and you become complacent and complicit. And, uh, and I'm saying that with absolutely zero judgment, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm, no. it, it is without with zero blame or shame, but we often become, uh, we just become uh, almost like victims to our own uh, judgmental prison, you know, and, oh, and yeah. it becomes, uh, we become trapped, uh, even though we have the, all the ability to leave, but we still become trapped because we're not, we're listening to our inner voice, but are we really listening? We're not acting upon it, you know? So there's one thing that I always, I said to my therapist once that I knew, I, like, I knew this was wrong. Like my gut, my voice was telling me it was wrong, but I didn't go this, the next step, which is acting on it. So yes. first you have to listen and then you actually have to act. And that act takes a, a ton of courage because it's, courage. It's, it's pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. It's being afraid. Uh, and it's really uh, a, 
about facing that fear and looking it in the eye. And uh, I often say, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is, yes, I'm afraid. Yes. yes, this is, this is, I have no, I have zero idea how any of this is going to work. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all my ducks in a row. I'm terrified. I'm going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. It's skydiving. I went skydiving in, in late 2018. I literally jumped out of a plane and, and I was terrified. I'm terrified of heights, but I also knew that I wanted to experience it. And I wanted to just, you know, uh, whenever I heard about it from friends or I saw videos and I was like, oh my gosh, this is something I really, really want to do. And I did it uh, a year and a half ago. And I was terrified when the door of that plane opened and I'm looking down and I'm like, oh my God. But in that moment also, suddenly, like just before I was about to jump, all that fear left me because I was like, Uh, you know what? Now, nothing matters anymore. Uh, My past, my fears, none of this was a sense of Mm. calm because I'd already made the decision to jump. And I did. And it was the most glorious experience ever. Uh, mm. I was crying at the end of it. And as I was falling, flying, whatever that was, I, the whole, the thought that was in my head the whole time was like, the girl who was denied the most basic of freedom is now flying like a free and fearless badass. <laughs> <laughs> and that girl is me. <laughs> so, I love it. You know, you just got to be your own badass. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love it. I, when you were speaking, I kind of laughed because I, I don't know if you've seen um, my Instagram or anything I put out, but I have this process that I work with women and it's hear, listen, voice, speak. And it's, it's around that, like we have never, we haven't been taught to hear ourselves. Yeah. And even sometimes like, it's exactly what you said. Even then when we do hear ourselves, we don't listen to it. Yeah. You know, we dismiss it. And then voicing it is actually when you start to put words and language around what you're hearing and and want and expressing it. And then for me, speaking is sort of the final thing is when we come out with our truth of who we are and we're at a place where we're, we feel free to be who we are. When you're able to live your truth, it, you know, it it just, you're just so free. Like today, yes, I speak about my story and people sometimes say that, you know, how, how does it affect you? You're talking about something so heavy and emotional all the time. Like it's so liberating. Liberating. It's yeah. Just, I, don't have to I don't have to put a mask on. I don't care who walks in a, 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 into my life or walks out of it because the people yeah. who are meant to be in my journey will walk in and will stay. And the people yeah. who are leaving, and sometimes that have, has been, have been friends and others who don't align and and uh, yeah, in the moment it kind of stinks, but then after that, I'm like, you know what? I'm actually grateful to you for leaving because you're creating space for the right people to walk in. Mm, oh, it's a beautiful so way to look at it. Mm. Um, there are so many things we could talk about, and I know I'm just looking at the time. We want I wanted to talk a little bit about child marriage because we we had had this conversation earlier, and I think it's important to um, actually record it on the podcast. The difference between an arranged marriage and a child marriage, and maybe just educate our listeners a little bit to what some of the laws are in Canada, because I, I think for a lot of us, we're not even aware of, of not the even situation. Aware. Um, uh, I, get, I, get, I see faces registered with shock all the time uh, whenever I tell people that child marriage is legal in Canada. It's actually 16 with parental consent. That's the minimum age. And 
and that parental consent um, in most cases constitutes force. And force is not a gun to your head or a knife to your throat. Force is coercion and pressure. Like if a 16-year-old is being told that you won't be part of the family or the community if you say no to this marriage, what's she going to do? Um, and uh, so I'm, I've been doing quite a lot of uh, research and um, starting to launch lobbying efforts to outlaw child marriage in Canada. Um, in the last decade alone, there have been close to 4,000 cases of child marriage in Canada, and the majority of them have been underage girls with much older men. So it's not just something that happens outside our borders. It's something that happens within our homes and in our communities as well. Um, the other piece is that, you know, when it comes to force, arrange our child. So arranged marriage is, it can be by your own choice. Like I could go and say to my mom right now, although I wouldn't deny with my wildest dreams, but I could, you know, technically say, well, mom, uh, you know, I'm sick of being single. Can you please find me someone? <laughs> um, and, uh, and that would be a choice that I'm making consciously. Uh, and that's an arranged marriage, but uh, so not all arranged marriages are are bad. Um, in fact, some of them can be quite successful. Uh, where as a forced marriage can happen at any age, uh, which is uh, somebody being coerced into it. So uh, a woman who feels that she is now uh, she, because she hasn't been married yet, she is incomplete and less worthy, and that's how society is making her feel. And then she is coerced into marriage as a result of that, that also is force as an, or is a woman who is subjected to torture or violence because she's not getting married to a certain individual. But then child marriage is always forced. Child marriage is underage marriage. It's, uh, you know, uh, under the age of 18, a girl is not allowed to vote, uh, get property, buy, get a credit card, uh, buy a car, uh, even, even rent a car uh, or, um, us get into any kind of other legal contract, but we allow her to get into the most important legal contract of her life, which is marriage. You know, and uh, and oftentimes, if if the girl has given birth, for example, to a kid before the age of eighteen, she won't be able to um, sometimes get a lawyer or get custody of her children uh, because she's underage. But we're allowing her to get into into a, a contract, uh, nevertheless. So um, it is. So child marriage is always bad. And I was a kid and I didn't know any of my rights or anything before I got married. And when I came to Canada, I was told for years that I'd be deported and sent back to Pakistan if I left my marriage because he was the one who was the person with the financial stability and I didn't have any education or money. Um, and child marriage always starts, already starts with a place of power imbalance. Okay. As a child who's completely right. dependent on this right. adult uh, so it is it is already a case of domestic abuse even going into the marriage and child marriage has always turned out to be uh, an abusive marriage um, whether it's physically or not but it is definitely abusive because abuse is all about control and power so there when there's a power imbalance uh, that's that's abuse and um, I often describe child marriage as legalized pedophilia it's just <laughs> pedophilia with a legal certificate mm. and it should not be allowed at all, not in this country, not anywhere in this world. And if there's one thing I can accomplish in my lifetime, it's to out get child marriage outlawed in as many countries as possible. Mm, <laughs> and hopefully wonderful. have people carry the torch later when I'm done when I'm not here. <laughs> of course. Wow, thank you. That, I think that clarification and that awareness is yes. really important for, for us to, to think of. Um, 
can you read something for us from your book? And then we're going to get into a conversation about writing. And Patty's going to ask you some brilliant questions about <laughs> the whole writing process. And but I'd love to hear you read something from your book. Absolutely. I'll, I'll read a, a quick little uh, paragraph uh, because this is my absolute, absolute favorite. Uh, so this is uh, from the time when um, I was nominated for this very big scholarship at the University of Toronto. And then I was um, selected as a finalist and all the finalists had to appear before a panel for an interview. And this is the scene uh, from my interview. Uh, and I eventually uh, was awarded that scholarship, uh, but the interview was, was something very special. And I'll mm. tell you why. When, you'll see why when I read it. <laughs> One of the first questions was what leadership meant to me. I had been a TA and run some classes and groups at the Af at local women's organization, but they were not, these were not the experiences I wanted to stress. Instead, I told them that I thought the most powerful type of leadership was leading by example. As a mother, I was striving to do that. I wanted my daughters to know that they had a right to every opportunity in the world. I'm trying to show them that through my actions, I said. One of the next questions made me pause. Who is the person who has taught you the most? Who has been the most influential? I was about to say my father, but I stopped myself. If I were being honest, I had to admit that wasn't true. I took a deep breath and forced myself to answer. My ex-husband. I said. I glanced around the table, face after face registered shock and disbelief. In my personal statement, I had mentioned that it had taken me years of struggle to get to university because I had wed as a teen and been stuck in an abusive marriage. My answer had clearly struck everyone as bizarre. He taught me how not to treat people, I explained. He showed me what I didn't want to become. In a way, he taught me how to be strong because he forced me to be strong. Because of what he put me through, what I had to rise above, I learned what I was capable of. While I wouldn't wish my experience on anyone else, I might never have known the strength, the truth of my strength, or discovered its dimensions if he hadn't driven me to it. The final question, however, was the one that unnerved me. With everything you've faced, what is it that keeps you going? The cool professional facade I'd been trying to maintain through the long round of questions started to crumble. I could feel my throat constrict. When I started to speak, my voice was wobbly. Every day I feel I should give up, I admitted, but every day I make myself get up and keep going. I need to respect myself and my dreams, to live with dignity and freedom, but it's more than that. I keep going because of my daughters. I want things to be easier for them. I want them to be able to pursue their goals and their dreams. Everyone should have the right to do that. With that, I thank the judges for their time and for the opportunity that they had given me. Thank you. Thank you. We spoke earlier about voice and, um, and for me, voice and story are the root of all things sacred. I wondered, reflecting back on your book, I knew that before your book, the Toronto Life article, the Toronto Life magazine article was pivotal in many ways that I thought, oh, of course, that, that must have been her first foray, but maybe it wasn't. So I wanted to ask that, was that the first brave step for you in really publicly embracing the role and the role of, of coaching folks on voice and educating on abuse and all of the things that you've now stepped into in your full power? Was the Toronto Life article the first brave step? Publicly. No, no, actually, the Toronto Life article came after years of doing it. 
the first brief step was when I graduated, when I won this scholarship that I just read yeah. the passage about, and um, I was named the top student um, at the university. Uh, I was asked by the mom of a friend of mine to, uh, she wrote a blog uh, for uh, Express Tribune, which is a very well-followed online Pakistani news, news forum. And she asked me if I would be willing to share my story. And initially I said, no, I, I thought, no, it's too shameful. It's too traumatic. And my daughter, who was 11 at the time, said, mom, if every woman thinks it's too shameful and traumatic, how will this change? I think you mm. should So I decided to share my story and it got published on my convocation day of all days. So June 10th oh, yeah. of 2013 is when you know, in the morning I went and got my degree and I, and it was, it, that story was online. And, um, and I, when I came home in the afternoon, uh, already an extremely emotional moment for me. I uh, logged into my social media and my Facebook, and it was flooded with messages from women all over the world. A lot of men wrote to me too, and I was just, um, you know, I, 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 I'm getting goosebumps that I tell you this, but uh, I always uh, used to, when I was growing up, um, uh, adhere to this Mark Twain quote. Uh, there are two most important days of your life are the, the day you were born and the day you find out why. Mm. And that's the day I found out my why. Uh, that's the day when I knew that this is why I'm in this world. Uh, the amount of love, support, encouragement, and just pure connection that I received that day from those mm. from women all over the world who I had never met and I could, I could offer them something. Uh, right. To unlock their own freedom and and their own voice uh, I just knew that that's the path that I will be on I didn't have all the answers I didn't know how right but that was when the seeds were planted and uh, and and then there's no looking back you know after that right all little events articles here and there and then Toronto life happened and then the book happened and now the book is being adapted to a tv series and right. who knows what else is gonna happen after this. <laughs> right I I wondered about that you know I speak a lot in my coaching practice about the book moving through us you know the book tells us when it's ready yeah. and I wondered if that was true for you that it came in its own its own time. You knew a book was coming, but it occurs to me too that maybe you always thought a book was in you. Can I you did. speak to I, that? I think at the back of my mind, of course, I always had this. That's one day uh, my 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 story will be in a book, uh, and then also one day my story will be a movie or some sort. And right. uh, and those things, I never really diligently set out to make it happen. I didn't know the process. I didn't pitch to any publishers. It just came to me. And that's the thing with your voice. When you listen to your right. inner voice, it just guides you and it puts, puts you in the right path. Uh, so um, it, it just sort of happened. You know, the, uh, an editor from Toronto Life happened to read an article that had been written about me in some small magazine that, you know, I'd never even heard of before. Right. And she just called me one day and said, hey, do you want to write this, this article with us? And then that article became the number one article of the year. And then suddenly yeah. I'm getting emails from publishers. Uh, hey, have you thought of writing a book? And then, you know, I did the book and now, and then the, the producers started to approach me for the TV series. And here we are today. And I'm sure this will just keep going. Incredible. I mean, it, it's even in of itself, it's a wonderful publishing story, isn't it? So um, as a, I'm a ghostwriter and collaborator um, myself and I, 
was so interested in how the collaborative relationship with Meg Masters worked. Um, how how did you embrace the idea of having someone support you, however she did? And can you fill us in on that? Because I think some people, a lot of people come to me and will say, hey, uh, I've got a story, but I don't think I can write this myself. Or they'll say, I just want some support around how to turn it into a book or how to turn it into a saleable manuscript. How did that work? And what was that like for you? So the, the process with Meg was really, really wonderful. Like I, because uh, when I was approached with the, for the book deal and I signed the book deal, I was like, okay, I'm not a, I'm not a writer. I'm a public speaker. If I start writing this book, it's going to sound like a 120,000 word speech. So <laughs> I don't think that's what, uh, what, you know, people would really like, I didn't know the structure of writing the book, etc. I mean, I knew the content, I know my story, but to be able to put it into book format uh, is a craft in itself. Right. And, yeah. and that's not my craft. So um, I was then uh, paired with Meg and, um, and she was absolutely, oh my God, I can't even imagine, like my next book is going to be with her too. I can't imagine anything, else, anyone else uh, being my voice because she really, really captured it. Mm. Uh, and we went through a few iterations in the beginning and you know, she was like, does this sound right? Does that sound right? It was a very collaborative process. And once we nailed it down, she just ran with it. Um, and uh, it was very, uh, I, I feel like I got very lucky as well because I, I have heard from other authors who haven't had that luck with their ghostwriters. Um, I think with Meg, uh, there was just a very, I just felt very safe because it was an emotional story. Um, it was me putting myself out there in a, in a way that I'd never done before. I mean, yes, I'd done speeches and articles, but that's nothing compared to writing a book, like the amount of, of vulnerability that it requires. And uh, it, it was almost at some points reliving the traumatic experiences. Yes, uh, and but I always felt like I was in safe hands, and, and that's uh, wonderful. And it was it was just beautiful, uh, and I have I have just so much amazing stuff to say about Meg. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, you know that's the thing that you I think the key here is to really find that person. And I again it was it was trusting your inner voice because I had actually met with a few other writers uh, during that time when I was like thinking of who the best person would be. And um, in fact, my publisher wanted to go with someone else, uh, but I stuck to my guns because when I met Meg, I just kind of felt this, this, you know, energy, this aha, this voice in me that like, yes, you know, this is my people. So um, <laughs> I listened to it and I dug in my heels. I'm like, no, we're going to go with Meg. And, uh, and it just worked out beautifully. Oh, I love that. I'm, I'm glad I asked and I'm more thrilled that you shared because this is a, a, a behind the scenes of publishing where I feel very fortunate to live in that space. But I don't think people realize that that's possible. There are so many ways of getting our story told and getting a oh, book realized, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. many ways. Yeah. In fact, I think um, um, my, you know, I, I haven't been through the whole pitching and all that process, although I'm going through that now with my second book. Um, but there are just so many different ways to get your message out there. And if there's no yeah. smooth, straight path that no. you do this and this and this, like you could start off with articles and then get a book or you could get a book and then do other things or you can, like there's just, like, you, you create your own kind of path. And again, just keep trusting that inner guide that you have and mm-hmm. you'll never go wrong. And you know, I think you've also trusted team members around you, as you said with Meg. That's a, it's key, and you still you stuck to your guns with the right team members. Uh, you know, right. like, that energy because sometimes you meet someone and you're like, ah, I don't know what it is, but can't put my finger on it, but it just doesn't feel right. So trust oh, yeah. that, trust that guy. 
Oh yeah. That's great advice. You know, you alluded to it and we're dying to share it with the listeners. Where will writing take you next? I've asked the question recently about whether your audio rights have been sold. Will you? Yes, will we have. You? Wonderful. Uh, and yeah, will, will you narrate? Will you I narrate? Will. I will. Oh, I'm so excited. Great. <laughs> and so where is writing taking you next? We can't wait to hear about your next book. So, uh, yeah. So right now I'm in the midst of, uh, um, collaborating on the screenwriting for this book, uh, for the, for the TV Amazing. series. Um, so we're doing the screenplay and I'm actually uh, planning my second book, which is super exciting. I'm actually more excited about it than anything else. I'm co-authoring it with my daughter. Uh, and that is on the impact of family violence on children's mental health, because often children are seen to be as these dormant, innocent bystanders. Yes. And, you know, they're innocent for sure, but they're not bystanders. And um, they actually get affected by abuse, uh, just like just like the victim does. And uh, it's very traumatic, and it leads to a host of other mental and emotional health issues later on. Yes. Uh, and my daughter struggled with a lot of that during her mid-teens, and she was diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder because of the abuse that she saw as a kid. Uh, so exposure to family violence is child abuse. And, and uh, uh, so that book will touch upon a lot of mental health issues and family violence issues. And it will be a mother-daughter journey of going through that and healing and coming at it from a place of love and empathy and holding space for each other. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so ex I'm thrilled to hear about mm -hmm. it. Um, you mentioned that you didn't think you were that kind of writer, but are you a reader? So we often love to ask if uh, someone has a favorite memoir or something, you know, that was pivotal in your writing journey. I am a reader, although I am now more and more tuned into audiobooks. I love Me listening too. to audiobooks because I can listen to them while I'm driving and I love driving. So uh, I, I'm actually like going through a lot of Oprah's favorites these days. And the book that I've been listening to these days is um, A Seed of the Soul. It's a, an old book by Gary Zukav. Uh, resonates on so many levels. He talks a lot about the voice, the intuition, and all of that. That, that bit really, really resonates. Um, I'm also, uh, I've also been listening to a lot of Brene Brown's books, because um, uh, right up my alley about yeah. you know, being vulnerable, etc., um, and uh, there's a few that I've also done, like I'm really excited uh, uh, to listen to Untamed by Glennon Doyle. I've, I've heard really good things about it recently. Uh, so, um, so yeah, you can see a theme. It's all about like women <laughs> and voice and, you know, yeah. uh, and, uh, and yep. just really just channeling your, your inner strength. Um, uh, a few of my friends say you should read some fun books as well. Like, that's, no. that's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll send, I'm going to send my tearjerker over to your house now so that you can have a good cry yeah, on my book. I I'll send my tearjerker. I can't wait. I really would love to. That is really uh, I'm so glad to hear you name books. Um, so is, did you always have a favorite like, is there a book you recommend, like that you'd said to your daughters, you must read this. This is a pivotal book. Is do you have a recommend more than anything book? How about one that you go back to and reread, even if it's Jane Eyre? I'm just curious what fires you up still. <laughs> okay, this is gonna sound super funny, <laughs> but uh, I, when I was a kid, I don't know how many times I read The BFG by Roald Dahl, the big friendly giant. <laughs> 
you just stepped into my world. Careful. You just stepped into my giant world. Whether or not you don't, you actually don't realize it. But my my son is a giant. My son has gigantism. So oh. be so everyone says to me, "Have you read Raoul Dahl's BFG?" Yeah. Because my son's the big friendly giant. So oh, uh, I, you, well done. I love that. <laughs> Because, you know, I, the reason is because I was always a very tall girl. I, I'm, I'm pretty tall right now. I'm 5'9". But growing up, like I had my growth spurt early on. So I was the tallest out of everybody. And I was always named or teased or bullied even, you know, and, and called giant. And, um, and then I read this book where this, there's this big friendly giant who is yeah. like a giant, but so gentle and so friendly. And how he, how he just accepts and embraces that and learns mm -hmm. to, you know, and not, doesn't see it as something that makes him different. So it makes him unacceptable or unworthy. Uh, and I just like, love it. I loved it as a kid. <laughs> so so, now so my daughters are also so you know, tall? Uh, very tall and they're both taller than me already. Uh, so I have a teen and a tween and um, <laughs> 14 year old, you know, she's kind of going through this. I'm the tallest and this and that. I'm like, read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I love that. You just Sorry. made my whole day. That's awesome. I love it. That is perfect. So I think we sadly need to bring this to a close, but we could talk for a long time. So we'll just have to get you back and your daughter, daughters or daughter, and um, talk about your next book. But um, it'd be great if you could just tell people where they could connect with you. And I think, given the nature of some of our conversations today, if um, there is someone listening who is struggling in an abusive relationship, maybe just what you would recommend, what, how they could start to take some steps to regain themselves. Uh, I think the, the, the main thing I would say is that leaving is not a one-time thing. Leaving is a process. <sighs> leaving is not just you get up one day and you leave. It's a, it's a process and you stay until leaving is scarier than staying and you leave when staying becomes scarier than leaving. And for every woman that mm. pendulum shifts in, in different ways at different times and every journey looks different. So stop, don't compare yourself to others and, um, and don't judge yourself that, oh shit, I went back. Maybe I don't have it in me. Yes, you have it in you. And every time you leave and go back, you're one step closer to finally leaving. I left five times and I was either sent back or I went back. And I've, I've detailed that in my book over and over again. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why the main reason, uh, the main aim that I had with this book is to be as vulnerable as possible and talk about those fears and those setbacks and those, you know, falling down and failing and all of those things, because they're not really failures. They're just steps towards success, right. ultimate success. Mm. So the, the only thing that separates uh, fail, failure and success is that ability to try one more time. That really mm -hmm. beautiful. Even if you... Yeah. Go back a hundred times, try one more time, and you never know when it will stick and when it will, when it will happen. Um, build the right community around you because that's imperative. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, if you're not getting the kind of support that you need uh, to live your life and live your truth from the people around you, you're not asking for the wrong things, you're asking the wrong people. Oh, so, I love that. Beautiful. Yeah. And people can reach you at? People can reach me on Instagram. I am Samra Zafar. That's my handle on Twitter uh, as well. And uh, my website is samrazafar.com. Uh, they can send me an email through there. Uh, I'm very, very approachable. So please write to me. I love, 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 love hearing from people and uh, love making new friends. Uh, so um, that's, that's, what's keep, that's what keeps me going on this journey mm. is, you know, uh, connecting with people like yourselves. 
And you. I, you, I think everyone's going to share with Sandy and I and saying how easily and energetically we connect with you. I mean, I just said to Sandy, like, I think Samra's my new spirit animal. You make me want to, you make <laughs> me want to do, you want to do, make me want to do everything in my life with just a little bit more gusto. <laughs> Oh, yes. yeah. Fantastic. You're already very, a lot, filled with lots of gusto, but if <laughs> I see it, add to it, I'm happy. And, it's, and trust me, it's <laughs> Thank I'm you so much. Best start to my week. Oh, yes. fantastic. Thank you for being with us, and we look forward to connecting again. And Patty, thank you for co-hosting and for introducing me to someone that has really impacted me. Oh, it's a joy, an absolute joy. Thank you so much.